Welcome to the Good Trash Donor Cast. I wanted to just give a shout out right before we start to our new intro music uh, brought to you by Aaron Rodgers. Thank you, Aaron. Not the quarterback for the New York or the Green Bay Packers. No, the roommate of Alex Sanchez, uh, one of the hosts of the Praise Down, which is uh, here on the Good Trash Media Network. It is beautiful. We're keeping it in the family. Yeah, it's beautiful and wonderful, and we're going to ruin it with some movie clips later. Um, and or maybe. some general talk of gen- uh, what you're listening to. Or it'll remain pure uncut. Ooh. Yeah, well, obviously, if we do anything with it, it will be uh, less significant than it is right now. But that's just, it, that's just it, how we roll. Isn't that good and nice? That's yeah. a treat for you, listener, from our from our good friend Aaron. Uh, he doesn't have a SoundCloud uh, or anything. If you, if you, if he's you really off the grid. Like, he's off the grid completely. He's the yeah. most off the grid person I've ever met. Yeah, it's really cool. So uh, there you go. Well, we love that. Thank you very much for that. We are here at the Good Trash Undercast. We do the thing. What we do is uh, we study the films that won't find their way into a film study syllabus unless it's Children of Men, which will be in a syllabus. Yeah, I thought this was a Daddy Daycare sequel, uh, but I was way off. Yeah, that is not what it is at all. <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, uh, our, our good, uh, beloved, and sweet listener, Keithan, uh, Keithan Lane-Smith, put together a list of the films that we have uh, recommended as an else or instead the most on this show. Uh, and then Arthur put out a poll on the Twitter. Uh, hey, of these movies that we keep mentioning, which would you most like to hear us talk about? Children of Men 1, which is why this film you definitely would study in a film studies course is going to be discussed on the show. So yeah. we are going to do something a little different than ordinary, but it's going to be a good time. And we want to identify who is speaking to you right now. Sir, who are you? I am Arthur Gordon. And only Britain soldiers on. Only Britain soldiers on. Accurate statement. Thank you for that. Who are you, sir, to my left? My name is Dalton Stewart, and Dustin, pull my finger. <laughs> no. <laughs> my name is Dustin Sells, and everything is a mythical cosmic battle between faith and chance. And here we are <laughs> doing this thing that we do, which is called analysis. That means it is not a review show. It's an analysis show. And that does mean we're going to have to spoil some things. And uh, But we're going to avoid that for the first part of the show if, for some reason, you have missed the best picture of 2017 released in 2006 children of men um if you happen to have done that um we are going to spoil that but we're going to avoid it for the first part the first part's going to be like this we're going to have synopsis from the voice of the cinema we're going to have our quick thumbs up thumbs down reviews which will be spoiler free we will play a game which might involve mild spoilers of this film tic-tac-toe um chess and uh it will definitely uh three-man chess that'll be interesting (laughs) <laughs> three-man, three-dimensional Star Trek chess. Oh, yeah. I always wanted to play that when I watched Next Generation when they were in the cantina bar thing. I, I've played it once. It's hard. I bet. I can, I can imagine. It's. I'm not very good at chess to start with, and it's real Adding in hard. two tiers of other boards. It is really, really hard. And when you can move up and when you can move down, is just very complex. It, oh, man, it makes me crazy. But anyway, we're not talking about chess. This is the good no. trash you were chess telling cast. Them, you were telling them the layout of the show, and uh, we always warn that there might be spoilers in the, in the game time. There's Usually not. There, there probably will be there, this week. There probably will be a Maybe. little bit. We're going to avoid them. Um, to, to, I mean, the most egregious examples of Spoiler Ridge we will avoid. But once we get down to business and we'll have a musical cue that will cue you in as to that thing happening, then you'll know all spoiler bets are off. So you've been warned up until that point. So without any further ado, Mr. Arthur Gordon, voice of Le Cinema, let's hear that synopsis, please. In 2027... 
in a chaotic world in which women have become somehow infertile, a former activist agrees to help transport a miraculously pregnant woman to a sanctuary at sea. All right. Well, there you go, dear listener. It's um, they're not pregnant. They're not having babies. And uh, why? And that's the least of their problems. And, uh, yeah. So <laughs> yeah. why keep living if uh, nobody cares uh, about the next generation? Because there will be no next generation. And so the nihilism and dystopia therefore ensues, and only Britain soldiers on, as Arthur has already said. So uh, I guess we'll just open this up with a thing. We keep mentioning this movie as a else or an instead. Um, so you probably are going to be able to predict our opinions, but I would love to hear them nonetheless. Dalton Stewart, did you like Children of Men and why? Oh, what a remarkable film. What what a spectacular, wonderful film. Uh, all of the political subtext going on uh, in E2 Mama Tambien gets uh, brought to the uh, the forefront uh, in this film uh, it's really interesting having come to uh, Quran's work kind of in reverse order uh just throughout my life um look uh, a movie that's a uh, dystopian post uh you know semi post apocalypse uh, appeals to me more than a than a foreign language road trip movie uh when i was you know yeah. 17 so obviously i saw children of men first uh but it's fun you know just a few months ago having talked uh, about e2 mama tambien uh to go and look at children of men now and really uh, Arthur uh, showed us this clip on the, the Blu-ray release. There's a, is it a full commentary from Zizek? No, it's just a few minutes of him talking about the film. Okay. So uh, D- Dustin's favorite, uh, what's his first name, Slavo? Slavoj. Slavoj Zizek uh, has, has a little bit of uh, just a brief audio essay on the Blu-ray, and Arthur sent us a clip uh, that uh, Zizek commented uh, on the similarities between E2 Mom and Tommy and the Children of Men. As soon as Arthur sent us that, I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. That's so right. And Full watching the film. of his wet S's. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it, it really is a cruel irony that a man with a speech impediment would, uh, you know, speak a language that that's, you know, that S consonant sound heavy. Yeah, Hayshek's on top of the Z, and he's got to say them now with those super, super <laughs> wet S's. <laughs> that poor sweet boy. Yeah, it's t- sad stuff. So uh, it is uh, just interesting in Quran's film and his body of work, but it's, you know, on its own, just a, a really powerful and, and beautiful film about, well, lots of things. Uh, and we'll talk more about that later in the show. But uh, just from a pure, formal uh, beautiful cinema aspect that's really where it shines too is not only in that subtext and those themes that obviously we'll talk about in analysis but just the craft uh and not just the you know famous one shots that we have there's two or three there's three that are pretty famous in this yeah. film uh, but just the world building uh the ways in which um quran weaves background info uh, on this nightmare world for yeah. us um the emotional state of everyone in this world is shown so effectively by just small things like uh, there's a government-approved uh, suicide kit you can buy. And uh, the, the the reaction people have to uh, the death of the uh, youngest person in the world. Baby Diego. Baby Diego. Uh, go all, Diego, go. All, all of these things. <laughs> and the... the the commonplacency of degradation and humiliation, these these uh, immigration sweeps that the the British Army seems to be doing, there seems to be this real uh, no clear delineation between armed forces and policing, which is never a good sign. Uh, They're ice cold. That was good, Arthur. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's just an incredibly effectively built uh, and illustrated world uh, that, that's been created by the production team. I mean, 
you got Emmanuel Lubeski doing the cinematography. You've got the very minimal and sparse score. It's just everything's there, man. It it all works. Uh, Clive Owen is giving just the, the best performance he's ever given, and I'm a big Clive Owen fan. I we'll talk more about that later in the show, but he's one of my absolute favorites, and uh, I wish he'd had a better career because I I absolutely adore him, uh, and I think he is a great performance. But so does uh, everyone in this film: Chiwetel, uh, Julian Moore. Uh, Oh my God, uh, Michael Caine and the actress who plays. Um, oh my God, Mimi. Is it the? Are you talking about the um, the yeah the, the nurse? Uh, oh no, not the nurse. Who, I was. Who are you um, thinking about? The key. The, key. key. Thank you. I couldn't think of Key's uh, the character name either. I had a total brain fart. The actress that plays Key is as fantastic as well. Yeah. Um, with a performance that doesn't have a whole lot of dialogue, but uh, I, I like when her dialogue comes because it's it's usually very astute observations or um, an occasional monologue. She doesn't get a lot of dialogue, but she does a lot with her on screen time, which is you know the majority yeah. of the film. She is key. It's key in Clive Owen. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I just love everything about this movie uh, from top to bottom, and I'm so glad we got to talk about or getting get to talk about it. All right. Well, thank you for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Uh, Arthur, did you like Children of Men? And if so, why? And if not, why not? Uh, yeah, I like <laughs> Children of Men. Yeah. Of course I like this movie. Um, it's fantastic. I mean, I'm just, I, I can't help but echo everything Dalton says. I mean, it's thematically fantastic. I, I think it, you know, obviously it's technically incredible. Uh, the innovation uh, to pull off some of these long takes that, you know, he does pull off, um, and, and a lot of it by happenstance and chance. Some of the, you know, the most interesting things that happened, the blood on the camera was purely accidental. And, uh, you know, Quaron didn't love it. And then the cinematographer's like, no, no, we want this in there. Trust me. This yeah, is going to be good. It's great. Uh, and, and so, yeah, it's just fascinating to watch. It looks great. Uh, it's incredibly timely impression, uh, and, and works. And, uh, like you said, the performances are great. Clive Owen is he's a great leading man. Uh he doesn't do enough. Um, but I appreciate him and I appreciate him here a lot. Yeah, I like everything about this movie, I think. I, I maybe a couple pacing things here and there, but other than that, I think it's 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 rock solid through and through. Uh Kwan's great. I, I love you know, I I'm glad we got to visit Itumama Tambien earlier this year. Yeah. Uh, big fan of Gravity and uh Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Um and so I think Children of Man is a magnum opus for him and his filmography, and it shows all of his strengths, and it's a great story. It's well done, his use of mise-en-scene to tell that story, uh, as Dalton mentioned, to give us that exposition without giving us that exposition over the head uh, is so vital to making this work, um, and which is where I think uh, – you know, something like Aeon Flux fell apart is, you know, giving us too much exposition. But here it's so weaved into the background of what's going on. Um, and it all comes together in this really incredibly developed world and picture. And nothing but praise for Children of Men. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I am also going to say that I like this movie a whole bunch. I mean, what a great opportunity to see a window of just the months leading up to the 2020 election. And uh, <laughs> that is a lot of what it's we're – the best documentary of – Of the future. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And uh, we are in the darkest timeline. It is prescient in crazy ways. It is a movie that uh, distributors and uh, marketers and film studio execs just did not know what to do with. It did not make a whole lot of money at the time. Nope. Won some technical awards, but or was nominated for some nominated. Technical. I don't think it won. Yeah, I don't think it won anything. But 
It, it's great. Um, well shot, well done. I will say this. You know, we've talked about the long takes, which are technical stuff that are great. We've talked about the performances, technical stuff that's good, uh, stuff that's going well with the score. All of that stuff's awesome. But the choice to shoot it on digital, I just want to point that out as well, is just uh, really, really inspired. It does give a gritty reality yeah. uh, to this. And this is before shooting on digital was super sexy yeah. or super common. And so it was a, a really, really intentional move where you did feel the sort of immediacy of that moment. And, I, and it worked works really well and i think the reason for that was you know the, the reason it worked so well uh back in 2006 was most films were still shot on 35 millimeter but the news had switched over to digital and i think that's a, a big part of the choice uh that got made and i think it, it really helped the longevity of the film so yeah we are now watching the news of the future and it is very very effective in that and thematically interesting uh i recommend it i mean it's, it's just good stuff all the way around so there you go dear listener there are biases uh we are quite pro obviously anything that was going to win on this poll we recommend it as an elser instead this often yeah it's gonna be a thing that's going to matter and it's going to be a thing that we're going to dig on yeah. quite a bit I, I i think by my count in the first 150 episodes or so this was recommended 13 times Holy shit. Uh, That's a lot. Yeah. I think the only movie that – I think the movie with the most recommends was The Matrix, which had like 20 or 30. I mean, yeah. It's, it's, which but, checks out. It checks out. It's one of my favorite movies. It's one of Dustin's favorite movies. It's a great yeah. movie. And you also like it quite a bit, so yeah. it's going to come up. Yeah. So, well, there you go, dear listener. That's where we're coming from. But we want you to be part of this conversation with us, and Dalton's going to tell you how you can participate on the interwebs. I will indeed. Uh, the easiest way to get in touch with us online is over at Twitter. Um, while it is a – uh, a fiery inferno, much like 2027 London in this film. Twitter is also still the easiest way to get in touch with us, and that's going to be over at good underscore trash. Uh, you can let us know what you're thinking about, what your questions are, and, and see what we're up to, uh, both with this show, the, the Praise Down, uh, the only two shows active on the network right now, but uh, two pieces of media that we're very proud of uh, either making or being a part of. So that that's the easiest way to get a hold of us. If you have longer form feedback, uh, that is going to be goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook. We're not really there that much, but uh, GTM, uh, facebook.com forward slash GTM. Go find us if you, if, that's, you know, if you don't have Twitter and that's the easiest way for you to do it. Sure, why not? Uh, we're not over there. We don't give a shit about Facebook anymore. It's, it's gone. It's a lost cause. Uh, put it out to sea. Let it go. Uh, Obviously, we would appreciate if you rate, subscribe, and review uh, review, rate, and subscribe to the show on your podcatcher, however you're putting this in your brain. Uh, I don't know. Are people still calling them podcatchers? I don't know. I hear that every once in a while. Uh, so anyway. Tell do, me, what do the kids say? I, I, buddy, I don't even know anymore. <laughs> I, I, I think I'm finally joined the two of you. I don't look. I, I try to pretend that I'm the, the, the voice of the youth on this show, but... I think I finally joined you guys. I, I, Gen Z is coming up behind us, and uh, God willing, they'll save the planet or something. They'll either um, save the planet or eat more Tide Pods. Oh, please don't eat any more Tide Pods. It's not a real thing. No, I don't it's think. really not. Uh, so anyway, the if you uh, would do that, uh, subscribe to the show. Uh, it's a big help. It increases our visibility across all of those uh, different uh, catchers, Stitcher Radio and whatnot. So we would really appreciate that. Uh, if you want to give us money, you don't have to, but you can at patreon.com forward slash GTM. We, uh, we make some fun bonus content uh, over there for you. There's lots of stuff. You can go read about it over there. It's patreon.com forward slash GTM. If, if you are so moved, if you get enough out of the show, uh, if you feel like uh, it improves your quality of life, well, hey, you know, help us keep the lights on. Uh, this is not, you know, we, we do it for you for free, but it, it's not free to make. So uh, that would be helpful. 
most importantly, just tell your friends. You don't have to get on the internet. It's it's a nightmare. Again, akin to 2027 London. It's it's rough out there on the the, the high seas that are the the World Wide Web. So you know, just uh, I don't know, text text your bud, you know, whoever. Or uh, I don't stand up, peek over the cubicle, and uh, say, Hey, Karen, you like movies? You should check this out. I don't, I don't know. However, how, however you <laughs> you tell people about things you like. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. So I think now, though, it is time to play the game. It might feel good. It might sound a little something. But damn the game. If it don't mean nothing, what is game? Who got game? Where's the game in life? Behind the game, behind the game. I got game. She got game. We got game. They got game. He got game. It might feel good. It might sound a little something. But fuck the game if it ain't saying nothing. And we are back with a game that everybody plays and nobody ever wins. Uh, that's right. It's our movie game of the week. This week's movie game is our favorite cold opens. That's right. Favorite cinematic cold opens brought to you by Children of Men. Children of Men. Jeez, starting uh, the film with somebody getting coffee and nearly getting exploded is a heck of a way to open your movie before you even show the title. Hashtag worst trip to Starbucks ever. Uh, that's that's how I always feel. I've, every Starbucks I've ever been and feels like a powder keg. Yeah, any any time now, this could happen. Um, and uh, the sort everybody of- uh, feels. Look, I, I, I know the baristas are doing their best to to impair or encourage uh, not impair encourage uh, a, a environment of warmth and welcome. It's no. No, everyone is always stressed out the yeah. moment they step inside of a Starbucks. And this, I mean, this won't go into analysis. It, it is a bit of analysis, but we're not going to talk about it during analysis. But I just want to point out just how normal it is, how normalized they are to this sort of violence, which is, yeah, you no, know. The other people on the street don't really freak out that much. It's prescient. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, this was something I was reading is, you know, uh, Theo just kind of goes on with his day after this happens. Like, okay, bombing. Yeah. Yeah, by the way, if they blow up the coffee shop after I leave, I'm not going into work, y'all. I'm just saying. No. Uh-uh. No, probably not. I'm probably not. going back home and I'm, crying. I'm taking the day off. That's, yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah I'm going to take a personal day. Yeah, yeah. I, I need one of those, I think, at that point. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, so colds open. Um, that's what we're talking about now. Your favorite colds open. Uh, Arthur Gordon, uh, number first, what's your favorite cold open? My first one is going to the comedy classic Tropic Thunder, uh, which play. cold opens with it's the Brilliant idea of three trailers for the different stars in the film. One of which is not even a trailer, but an ad. The first one is the ad for Al Pacino's Booty Sweat Energy Drink. I had no idea what was going on. So when I went to see this film... You see it in theaters, too? I saw it in theaters. Yeah. Funny thing, uh, we took a group of students from our Christian university to see Tropic Thunder. Nice. And this was the first introduction to this world. But it's... It's the first a... lines of the film. <laughs> I love the pussy hell yeah. <laughs> what in the world is happening in this movie? This is not the normal Coca-Cola trailer I see before <laughs> before nope. a film. Um, it, it's genius. It's a genius way to set up the characters in this movie mm-hmm. to show us uh, what their careers are like and where they're all at before we get to filming Tropic Thunder itself. And, uh, you know, we follow the Al Pacino's with the uh, uh, Devil's Abbey. Satan's, Satan's Abbey. Abbey. Uh, with uh, R.E.J. Uh, in there, and then we get the... Uh, and an MTV Movie Award winner for Best Kiss, Toby yes. McGuire. <laughs> so great. Uh, and then we get the one for uh, uh, Stiller's, uh, his big action franchise that he's got, and I think we get uh, uh, the Eddie Murphy-esque uh, Jack Black one as well. But it's it's such an audacious opening 
to the film that and the, the thing about cold open it has to set the tone of the movie right it sets the tone for what's about to happen and give us an introduction to the world and, and it does a great job of both of those things and so i think it's very memorable I'll, i will remember this for you know forever uh and so i think it's a great cold open Awesome. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dulcer, what's your favorite first cold open? Uh, the first cold open I'm going to mention uh, does exactly what the Tropic Thunder cold open uh, Arthur mentioned does. It sets up the world. It explains the tone and the characters really effectively. Uh, and it is going to be a film we talked about not that long ago. It's Joel Schumacher's Batman Forever. Nice. It is a great cold open and I think is really important. Now, most of the Batman films, including Christopher Nolan's movies, uh, feature a James Bond-esque cold open, which for Batman's character really makes a lot of sense uh, to have that kind of James Bond-type opening. Uh, what Forever does really effectively, though, is lets the audience know, hey, the, those last two Batman movies you watched, this this is not those movies. It's a different movie. It's, it's a little bit sillier. It's a little bit wackier. It's a little bit weirder. And uh, st- strap yourself in because it's going to be colorful. And uh, that's that's what this movie is. It is wacky and weird and colorful and, and a real treat. Um, and, and I think the film is better for opening with that that treasure trove of visuals uh, to kind of let you know that this is the kind of color palette you're going to get from this movie. This is the kind of energy we're going for. Uh, it, and again, it, it's not something that I think a lot of people are going to think about when they think about great cold opens, but there is something kind of special about it. And unfortunately, the rest of the movie doesn't quite live up to the strength of that. But uh, as we all agreed uh, on that episode, I think Batman Forever is maligned uh, unfairly. There you go. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Now, you know my love of diners is great, and I love a fine cup of coffee and a donut and those kind of things to enjoy. But one film does make use of the diner, a little bit of just tabletop loving conversation that ends in mayhem and murder and a sting of music from Dick Dale and Miser Lou. I'm talking about Pulp Fiction's opener. Uh, it's so good. Honey Bunny it, it, and it, Pumpkin. It's awesome. It really is unfortunate that so many of those movies are so good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as as we've made clear, I, we have an official stance on Quentin Tarantino. We don't like him very much. Uh, yeah, he, but uh, damn it, that's what a great opening yeah. scene, man! It kills it. Yeah. yeah, just absolutely kills it. And now you are in for something else, something yeah. different, something new, and now for something completely different. Yeah, yep. and man, good times are had by all. So, Pulp Fiction's Honey Bunny and Pumpkin introduction is. Pretty fantastic. All right, so uh, what is your um, next favorite of your cold opens, Arthur Gordon? Uh, Dalton referenced James Bond and obviously is a franchise with no shortage, but I want to give a shout-out to Casino Royale. Oh, yeah, uh, the parkour chase. Yeah. Casino Royale? No, that's in Skyfall. No. Right? The, oh, I'm so sorry. The The parkour chase comes after the, yeah. the cold open of Casino yeah, yeah. Royale, but it's the, Cause Casino the construction Royale's, side. Yeah. Casino Royale, we get the cold open of the black and white, yep. which uh, has to set oh. the tone. Uh, not only for you know a new Bond, but a new direction for the whole franchise. Yeah. And it does a great job of doing that. And I think shooting it in black and white is brilliant. Uh, going into, oh, I can't remember who who does that. Is not the Jack White one, is it? That no, that's Jack the White. Chris Cornell one. Yeah, Chris Cornell. Yeah. Um, um, themed for that that movie, and it's it's just a great opening and give, kind of giving us this background on 007 getting his license to kill. Uh, and I think it's just so well put together and and, and great work. Yeah, it's who it's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, all the bond all the time. Very very good, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What is your next favorite, Mr. Dalton Stewart? Well, look, uh when we did this poll of the most recommended movies, as Arthur mentioned, The Matrix was at the very top, but we've already talked about that movie. Uh, I'd like to revisit it someday, possibly the sequels, but when talking about Children of Men's Cold Open, what are we going to do? Not talk about The Matrix's Cold Open? <laughs> what look, pretty good. The Wachowskis 
said, all right, Word Brothers, we see the budget you've given us, and we know it's not going to work. So what we're going to go ahead and do is use all of it on the cold open of this movie, <laughs> and hopefully that will convince you to give us the money we actually need. And it fucking worked. Yeah. You know why it worked? Because that cold open is so good. Yeah. And again, sets the tone for the world. Let you know you have entered an unreality, uh, and you will learn more about why you are living in an unreality. Anon. Uh, but it opens with this amazing, uh, you know, raid on uh, Trinity's uh, hacking workstation, but then is followed by this great rooftop foot chase uh, that not only is it just a, a visual splendor, sets up the the kind of fantastic action scenes that are going to fall in this film, but also has like this great character beat uh, for Trinity. Uh, Carrie Ann Moss has this great moment where she jumps through this window and you see uh, th- this moment of trepidation where she's like, okay, am I still being followed? Am I about to have to fight an agent? And you don't understand at that early stage of the movie what that might entail. Uh, but it, again, it just sets up this world so great, has this little character beat. It's an all-time great cold open. Awesome, awesome. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Donald Stewart. I love a great cold open because they introduce the characters, as you say. They build the world. They set the tone. Um, sometimes uh, the, the score is sort of introduced. And all of those things happen at once in a moment. And I'm talking about The Lion King, guys. Uh, that yeah. cold open, mm-hmm. that introduction oh, yeah. is fantastic with the smash cut to the title card. Uh, just brilliantly well done. I mean, you know. Kids' cartoons sometimes don't get the same love uh, that the live-action yeah. cinemas do, but um, formally, The Lion King is a pretty brilliant, and I'm a big fan of that particular cold open. All right, what is your number last favorite pick of Cold's Open? Uh, this is a tie, but they're related because they both feature Bradley Whitford, and they're both horror films. Oh. And it's the double deck of the traditional cold open uh, that really sets the tone for the world, that is Get Out, yep. uh, which immediately puts us into the scenario of what's going on you know the, the target of the you know the situation uh, essentially kind of giving us the kind of comic flair a bit uh, in the dialogue that our, our character has as he's walking across the street and then letting us know immediately this is a horror film and the uh, next one's an episode of the west wing right yeah exactly okay. yeah yeah uh but you know the other one is the bonkers cold open to cabin in the it's woods such a great so cold good. open it's perfect it, it, yeah it's great uh we have no idea why we're in this in- industrial complex as bradley whitford and uh, i can't remember who's walking with uh um as they're going through t- uh the building one of those that guys it's one no, of those that it's, guys it's um uh, uh, it Richard, Richard Jenkins. Jenkins. It's yeah, Richard yeah, Jenkins. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, who both made it into Oscar-nominated films this year. Hey, congratulations, boys! Yeah, uh, going somewhere. It could. Hey, you know what? This could is happen to two nicer guys. It's hilarious this year watching all the movies back to back, seeing the overlap because Timothy Chalet is in you know Call Me by Your Name, Lady Bird. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other boyfriend from Lady Bird is in Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Yep. Uh, Red from Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri is in Get Out. Yep. Uh, you know, there's all this overlap. It's, there's it's a great lot of actors. Uh, Michael Solberg's yeah. in like everything. Yeah, uh, so as he should awesome. be. Yes, as he should be. Uh, but yeah, Cabin in the Woods. It's a great cold open because you're like, what is this movie? What am I watching? This yeah. makes no sense. To have a horror movie open with a this scene walk of and just talk. corporate walk and talk, yeah. and then a just this talking about pregnancy and yeah. getting getting pregnant. And I'm all getting this great some stuff. new cabinets, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Have you yeah. tried? Have you tried childproofing these and things? And then just. Wow. Yeah, that yeah, music sting. Beautiful. Uh, uh, so, yeah, that's that's my number one pick as Cabin in the Woods. It's Nicely a good one. played. All right, Dalton, what is your number last uh, favorite pick? Uh, so when people think about famous cold opens, uh, especially in recent memory, uh, a lot of people go to uh, Scorsese's The Departed, that 18-minute long, why did we even bother putting yeah. the titles in? Uh, and it's a great one. I, I do kind yes. of like the, oh, you thought the movie had started already? Yeah. Nature of it. 
But I actually am going to go to one from just a couple of years prior. Uh, instead of picking one of our most uh, celebrated filmmakers, I'm going to pick one of America's most maligned filmmakers, and that is Zack Snyder. Oh, okay. What did you think I was going to say? I was going to Michael Bay. Oh, no. I, like, I thought I'd already done that. Uh, no, Watchmen? Zack, Zack Snyder. Uh, I thought about Watchmen. I'm actually going to go to even earlier in his filmography, his very first feature film. Yeah. Dawn of the Dead. I almost his, put that on my list. His Dawn yep. of the Dead remake. Yep. Oh, that's that, very good. Yeah. That cold open is fantastic. Yeah. And even going to the titles, the Johnny Cash on oh, it's mm. gorgeous. Yeah. Yep. And again, it, it's, it does a really good job of setting up the last day of normalcy yep. for this character. Uh, and again, as all co- cold opens do, they introduce the world. And in this case, they introduce Sarah Pauly as the lead of the film. Uh, and say what you will about Zack Snyder, but remaking The Dawn of the Dead and deciding, nope, this film should have a female lead, it's a good call. It's a smart call. And uh, a call that I think uh, Zack Snyder probably wouldn't make this this stage in his filmography. I, I kind of wish his career had gone differently. Uh, maybe he could have uh, worked in some atmospheres that would have been uh, less indulgent of his bro tastes. Because I think, it, I don't know, he, he's a guy with an interesting eye. And yeah. I think if he had been forced to do things that were not quite up his wheelhouse, yeah. uh, just forced to be different, I think his career could have been much more interesting. And I think this cold open from Dawn of the Dead shows that because, as again, or as Arthur mentioned, it has this great musical cue with Johnny Cash, uh, sets up, uh, shows us scenes of a world falling apart, uh, presumably just scenes of our actual world existing on a daily basis, yeah. I think. Uh, but it really does effectively set up th- this end-of-the-world movie you're about to watch. Yeah. And uh, I don't think it gets the love it deserves because, uh, look, it's standing on the shoulders of the giant that is uh, George Romero's original. But uh, there is something to that remake, I think. I like it a lot. Yeah, I think it's it's got a lot to it. All right, well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton, sir. My number last pick of favorite colds open is from the realm of television. And uh, in television, what you can do is you can really set stakes, especially in serialized television, well into the no, uh, the knowledge of the series, that you can do something to characters, right? And so there is this particular cold open in which everyone you love dies, and dies badly. I'm looking at Star Trek: The Next Generation, yeah. a episode called "Cause and Effect," a, a, a well beloved episode. It's, if man, I'm not mistaken. it's super, super good. And the spoilers, ahoy, dear listener. But uh, what ends up happening is that uh, you're on br- the bridge at the Starship Enterprise, and a terrible, terrible flaw is introduced, and the entire ship explodes, and everybody dies. And then suddenly you're back, and you experience Groundhog Day until they figure out how to get it right. There's a character that has some memory, and uh, that. That character is sort of uh, tasked with figuring out how to crack the code and get out of the time loop and uh, also get out of the time loop without everybody dying. And uh, it is fascinating, and it's a brilliant cold open that really sets the stakes uh, for uh, the episode. And you know what? Um, TV needs to get some love. So you Star know, Trek what, for the win. You know what? I will go ahead and jump in, Dustin, uh, since you were so wise to give TV some love. I- I'd like to give some love to uh, a cold open that's from a pilot. Uh, so really a cold open for the whole series. Uh, and that's going to be the uh, cold open for the pilot of Riverdale, uh, the CW series that I will never stop singing the praises of. Uh, a cold open that uh, wild. lets you know uh, th- this is a different kind of Archie and this Jughead and Betty Archie and Veronica. Like you know, uh, no. This is this is Archie Fox. <laughs> <laughs> this show is wild. Uh, what a great. We didn't talk about this, but how great is it that uh, we've got Veronica and Becky in Heathers? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, it's uh, her old friend is. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's so fun. I, I did yeah. think about the Veronica, but yeah, the, I didn't re- even occur to me that her. It's so funny that yeah. that uh, 
we've got the Veronica as the lead, and I didn't realize her old friend was Betty. Yeah. But, man, you're so right. I can't believe we didn't talk about that yeah. last week. Yeah, yeah, we got a bunch of Archie connections there. That's fun. That's fun. Well, so, there's our game. Yep, we had fun playing that game. Um, if you would like to play with us along um, on your internet, you can do so um, via those magical means of social media that we've already mentioned uh, thus far in the show. But I believe now it is definitely time to get down to business. Yes, business. Yes, business time. I know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business time. Ooh, yes, business. Yes, business time. Oh, guys, we are back, and we are down to some business, guys. There has been so much doing of the sorting of the laundry and of the recycling and of brushing yeah. our teeth. And we're in the movie analysis business, mm. and business is very good. Yes, it is. And so we are going to talk about Children of Men, and there's so much to do. Uh, I guess the first thing we need to talk about is like it's sort of its prescience and sort of its place. Um, and uh, there's a great um, uh, the Possibility of Hope documentary that's sort of attached to uh, the uh, DVD yeah. and Blu-ray releases of the film. And so there's a couple little lines from that that we're going to talk about throughout. But one of the things that happens is uh, my boy Schlavoy, um does uh, make a Hegel reference, and I love when some Hegel comes in. And Hegel talks about how representation is always at its best when it's even more than the reality. That it is just the reality that's really, truly itself without the ways in which reality sort of hides itself from itself. And the suggestion is that Children of Men is contemporary Western society. It's just it's not as hidden from itself. It's just turned up to 11. And yeah. so let's just talk about what what are we talking about when we say that? Well, it's interesting that this is uh, what, what Schlavo uh, references this, this Hegel idea, because last night um, – in preparation for this show, I didn't watch Children of Men. I already watched it earlier in the week. You read Hegel. I watched 1984. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Dalton and, doesn't read. <laughs> yeah, bitch, please. What are you talking about? <laughs> no. I do a movie podcast. I ain't got time for books. <laughs> uh, no, I read. Yeah, when I read, it's usually a, a sad article about the comics on the Sunday morning <laughs> paper. I was not expecting him to come. Out. And I am a fully committed Hegelian. That's no, what I was wanting. Yeah, that's what you're ready for? <laughs> no, so I watched uh, the, the 1984 adaptation of. Uh, George Orwell's 1984, starring John Hurt. And what, what does not work about that film, uh, obviously becomes very clear very early on. I was like, oh, shit, I have, I'm going to have to read this book because this doesn't, this doesn't feel quite suited to a visual narrative. And, and that film's fine. I, I like it okay. But what makes uh, dystopian London much more effective in Children of Men than the dystopian London in 1984, the film version, for me, is that 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 lack of hint of reality, right, that, that Hegel's talking about. The, the London in 1984 is turned up so loud that you can't see that it has such resemblance to the world we already live in. And I think what Children of Men, keeping things grounded, keeping it this dystopia, a world that we, this, you know, totalitarian uh, police state, making it look like the Western society we already really know uh, makes it yeah. a much more effective look at this kind of controlled society because um, while the, you know the the image of a boot stamping on a humanity's face for all time uh, is effective in 1984, there, there's already a boot stamping and it's sometimes much more subtle and insidious than uh, the the dystopian uh, totalitarian society that George Orwell gave us. Sometimes it's uh, the society and children of men, which, as uh, Dustin has said, uh, using Hegel to argue. Uh, it really does just resemble the Western society yeah. that we already know. You see, uh, you know, 
questionable harassings of the populace uh, by law enforcement. You see uh, deep poverty. Uh, you see massive inequality. Um, and that's just on your way to work. Yeah. And I don't think you have to think that hard about your own life, listener, to think of some times on your way to work that uh, your your life probably seems a little bit like Children of Men. Yeah. Uh, where you just see a lot of human misery um, continuing uh, without any end to prop up your uh, your uh, drive to work. And not, I'm not even going to say your comfortable life. Your drive to work to maintain what life you have. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's that's what Children of Men does really effectively in the you know 20 to 30 minute opening before the plot proper kicks off. Yeah. Is show you this world that still looks like ours. Yeah. There's some, there's some really great aesthetic choices here setting up in that mise en scene uh, of constructing this not so future future London of 2027. Um, and, and yeah, we're keeping all those things. I think what we've learned from sci-fi in the past is, you know, in 20 years, we're not going to be flying cars. We're not going to be teleporting to work, you know, whatever. And I think grounding it in this, it's it's a London that's a little dirtier. It's a little rundown. And, and you know, we, we don't have the hope of a future. So why take care of these things? We're just going to keep pressing forward, you know. So we've still got the billboards to sell, you know, pet food or, you know, whatever. We're still advertising. Capitalism is still the thing, right? Driving the world forward. And, and, and you know, nothing else really matters. You know, we're still walking into the coffee shop to get our coffee and the double decker buses are still running. The cars aren't, you know, floating or flying or anything like that. There's uh, a few little scientific, you know, GPS built in. That's kind of cool. If you notice in Michael Caine's car when they're driving out to his home. Mm -hmm. Um, But those kind of choices to just, you know, it's not cranking it to even, you know, eight or nine, it's cranking it to maybe five or six and just adding the little layers here and there, little details uh, that show us it's a little bit of the future. Uh, but it's still so relevant to where we are today, and I, th- I think it's a brilliant sto- uh, choice aesthetically to design this world, this production, the way that they do, uh, to, to keep it real for us, and, and, and it feels real. Yeah, I mean, to crack that theme open even more, I didn't think we would get to this point this early in analysis, but um, I feel like now's the time to talk about it. I think what is so effective about just the future world of this film overall is it reminds us? Yeah, Dustin's having some phone problems over there. He just kind of gave it a slap. That was a, a weird choice, but uh, I don't. I don't think. I that's think you're jumping him. I think you're leapfrogging him. No, that's good. <laughs> Bigger thing. I, I think what the and again, I, I'm sorry if we let frog a topic. If that's the is that the past tense? Leapfrog. 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 Leap to frog. Sorry if we're jumping ahead, uh, Dustin, but it just seems like a good time jumping to bring the this frog. up. Uh, what the world. Of Children of Men does. I'm going to barrel forward in spite of you both. Uh, it reminds us how precarious the world is. Yeah. It, it, it reminds you, hey, the, the world you live in, think about the injustices that happen on a day-to-day basis. And think about how much, just how little worse the world would have to be for those injustices to become even more rampant. Think about how precarious the condition of humankind is um, just on at the current level of uh, modern society. And I think that's what the film is saying is, look, it, it's not going to take anything all that big to really ruin us. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think that's the thing, is that what is so awful about the future of London and England and the world that's being predicted there, it, it, none of it is an extraordinary leap. You know, I mean, again, this is written and, and directed uh, in 2006. The uh, the novel's a little older than that. 93, uh, I believe. Uh, that it's based upon. And uh, so it def- definitely has a sort of pre-9-11 kind yeah. of thing going on, in the novel anyway. Yeah. But um, the, absolutely, as a post-9-11 world, world work but 
a world in which terrorism becomes commonplace, a world in which racism becomes institutionalized, a world in which immigration and uh, nationalism, jingoism, isolationism sort of works the detriment, a world in which uh, there are dire consequences environmentally to the human family, and as such, people simply resign themselves to the inevitability of that destruction without sort of hoping their way forward. Um, those kinds of things. As we look at, again, I, this film is so weird because in 2006, I still think it was a bit of a leap. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I, I still, I mean, I think Quran was right on. And it, it, and the reason why it worked so well then is that it wasn't just this extraordinary, um, uh, desperate kind of, you know, very, very cynical kind of leap, yeah. but it wasn't quite as overt. Um, but it was society as it is playing itself sort of in large scale. I think now, as I still contend, that uh, Children of Men is the best film of 2017 released in 2006. Yeah. Well, and I, I think the reason for that is we weren't ready in 2006 to wrestle with the idea of a mass migration crisis. Right. We weren't ready to wrestle with the idea of a global economy just perilously teetering on the edge of collapse Every day. Um, and then 2009 hits and we have the recession and then there is the rise of ISIS and the ensuing migration crisis that caused, the Syrian civil war and the migration crisis that that caused. And you have this domino effect of worldwide calamity happening in the decade after the release of Children of Men. And I think it causes us to have a society that makes us a little bit more ready to go, oh, shit, we've yeah. been asleep at the fucking wheel for 20 years. Right, and so there's a weird way in which this film was predictive, but in a way that people still I, I held out a hope that it was not going to quite work out that bad. Ah, it's not going to be that bad. You know, we can trust in democracy, we can trust in our humanity, we can trust in our economies, we can trust in our power and our intelligence and all that sort of stuff to work together. And now the, the film becomes something where you look at it and go, "Nope, that's where we were heading, and we are heading there faster now," uh, which is really, really interesting. Um, there's another thing that the, the the film talks about quite a bit. Again, a lot of these notes are coming from that little documentary, um, the the possibility of hope. But this um, idea that um, this film is connected to the idea of the end of history. Kerry Fukushima, uh, Fukunaga, excuse me, is a very, very famous. Um, no, what is his name? Kerry Fukunaga is the director. The director. Yeah. What is his name? Oh, man. I, Buddy, I, you're more well-read than I am. I cannot help you here, unfortunately. Yeah. Famously, a Japanese theorist has once said. Um, <laughs> it's unfortunate when you forget a name. My brain just is hey, not working. you know what? It's it Sunday. happens. We don't have you know stacks and reams of paper in front of us. We're all shooting from the dome, more or less. But there's a famous line about 1989, 1990 being the end of history, that this moment in which global capitalism has defeated Soviet socialist economies, uh, the moment of the end of history. And I, I'm seeing Arthur that's going to Google and get my details right, and I appreciate that very much much um and that this film is dealing with this sort of globalized world that we are now no longer local we are now part of a world that is much bigger and much broader but what that ends up doing to us is it removes from us a sense of community Did you find that name arthur is it yoshihiro francis fukuyama fukuyama thank you yes francis fukunawa yeah yeah fukunama fukuyama fukuyama 
So uh, I apologize. I, I knew it was like an, an English first name and then a very, very Japanese uh, last name. The end of history and the last man. Yeah, and that's uh, that, that's sort of what he has identified as that moment. Um, and uh, But what happens then is that because of the lack of locality, right, the lack of a, you know, in the, in the case that he's speaking of, a local economy, a local culture, a, uh, you know, then this sort of transnationalism of culture, of commerce, of po- politics, of policies, that everything – we find out just how permeable our borders are, that we end up lacking community and that we, as such, as people who lack that community in a world full of more and more migratory communities, that that need for a sense of community in an arbitrary sense ends up evidencing itself in violence. Well, and I I, I think I would argue that there's nothing wrong um – I would say actually a positive end goal potentially is um, the global community, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, The problem is that uh, we entered uh, a global world before, you know, historically and technologically, uh, let me rephrase that, technologically and socially we entered a global world before we did culturally, if that makes sense. economically. Economically, yeah. 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 I mean, we, we had integrated some of the keyest and highest levels of society globally before we, you know, stopped thinking things about, you know, like lines in the sand that we drew were important. And it, it takes a, a whole lot of human cooperation uh, to make the world a community that says, all right, whatever happens to the least of us happens to all of us. Uh, there should be no least of us, in fact. Um, we should all be trying to take care of each other and lift each other up. And for a global community to exist with equality, you have to have a society and culture that is already to that point. And when you don't have that, all you have is people with big sticks exploiting people with no sticks. Right. Well, what ends up happening is an economy of scarcity, right? The, yeah. the, the sense of belonging and the sense of, of being a part of a thing since it is now lost – because we are all sharing the same music and we all are sharing the same products and, and our clothes are made from the world over around the exploitation of others and uh, that people are showing up and maybe I'm going to find myself on the uh, short end of that exploitation cycle. That that defensiveness, what it ends up creating, is a desperate desire to, uh, again, sort of reform those localized communities. That we are British Britons in the case of Children of Men. That we are American first Americans in the case of the United States, and by trying to form those or reform those kinds of communities that have now become much more permeable and try to, again, re-solidify or if you want to use a cellular kind of uh, metaphor to go from an animal cell to more of a plant cell with cell walls, uh, if we are to go and try to do that kind of thing, it's arbitrary and it's always going to be full of violence and it's only going to further sort of disintegrate it's going to further isolate it's going to further further atomize our relationships to one another and uh, i think what we see as a situation in children men is that further atomization is that you have a a a swell of britons wanting to be britons but then you have a swell of other people who are trying to find new identities in a way that's not going to work very well i I don't i don't think the fishes are really doing everything right either no yeah i I don't don't think that's the point either i mean that's the strength of the film is that the um you know the revolutionaries who want to topple this uh, fascistic regime are fucking awful, and we're yeah. replaced with our own fascistic regime. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Because all power structures are vulnerable to uh, hijacking by uh, people who want power, yeah, uh, for its own sake. 
And so, yeah, everything becomes idealized into these sort of abstract principles that allow one to fully uh, accept that I am I'm for the common man, I'm for the everyman, I'm for the everyman who's like my kind of man. And I'm using that man language because it's almost always gendered in the way that this is phrased. And I'm for that kind of stuff in the abstract, but that way I can get on my bus and I could ignore all the everymans and womans and others that are outside the bus who are suffering. It's one of my favorite scenes of the movie. Yeah. When he takes a tram to Michael Caine's house and just getting from A to B in this London means uh, you were flaunting your uh, removal from exploitation uh, to the rest of uh, London. And uh, people come out to throw bottles at the trains just because fuck you. Yeah, um, and it's it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie, yeah. and I think it underscores that point you were just making, Dustin. And I think the suggested tension then is the best way to really be a globalist, to be a global society member, is to be so committed to the local and whatever looks like justice, whatever looks like true care on that local level. That is the way in which any sort of global society can be put together. You know, but, um, yeah, and, because and that's where we've missed it, like you said. Yeah, none of us have the power to uh, impact that that global community so we have to try and move the needle in our own lives right we have to move the world forward into something that resembles uh something more caring and equitable uh just in our own sphere of influence because yeah we we can't right the ship uh, at the top as it were so this brings me to my last big point that I wanted to make sure that we discussed. Uh, again, th- this is this is big stuff in terms of film theory and political theory and the sort of stuff that um, I read in my studies that we talk about a lot on the show. Um, if you want to think of a publishing house, uh, if you're looking to say, okay, I like the ideas that you're sort of wrestling with, and if you saw the uh, documentary and you saw Naomi Klein talk and you saw um, – Fukuyama talking, if you saw Shabo Zizek talking, we're talking Verso Publishing House. I'm going to make an endorsement right now. Just go there. They're having a, a fire sale until, you know, uh, I don't know. They're always getting like a... Oh my god, we're having a fire <laughs> sale. <laughs> All you, the time Arthur. in terms of political theory, film theory, and this kind of stuff. Um, but one of the big parts of the debate, and I think this film is what we call a dystopian film, yeah. right? But the big debate in terms of political action is the idea of utopias. Um, The tomorrow and uh, the human project are these sort of utopian ideals that there is going to be a way to make a way for hope for a future, to work things out, that there is a tomorrow that's coming. And uh, the question I want to have first, I guess, and ask is, is the film ultimately optimistic? Is there hope in a utopia? Is that a useful idea? Um, uh, well, uh, well, we'll talk about whether or not it's a useful idea next. But the first thing is, is the film setting us up in a position to say, yes, things are desperate and bad and awful and ugly, and you know we might as well all get Niagara boxes and uh, wait for the end to come? Or is it suggesting some way to soldier on? What do you guys think? I, I think it is offering up some picture of hope, and I don't necessarily think it is utopia. And I think Clive Owen hints at this, and we see it in the, that that last sequence when you know he comes down with the bait with her with Cree and the baby or Key Key, Key and the baby. Cree is an alien race from from the Marvel, Marvel universe. universe. Yes, yes uh, when he comes down with Key, right, uh, which is a very symbolic name in and of itself. Uh, and and everybody, the both sides of the war, the fish and the army, stop and they're all in awe of this. And then it goes right back to fighting. And, and Clive, you know, I, I, or Theo, I think he realizes, you know, the world's not going to come together in the name of this baby. And, you know, the fish hit at it early on when they're meeting. And, you know, they say that they'll use uh, actors to come in and 
put up this facade of this world, you know, but I, I, I think Theo is holding out that there would be some hope if, if, if this project can uh, bring in key, you know, that they could find something. And I don't necessarily know that it would lead to some sort of utopia because I, I don't think the film believes that utopia is possible. I don't think Theo believes that uh, any type of utopia is possible. Um, but that there could be some sort of hope for a future. I, I think that is very, uh, I think that's where the film ends. I think there is a hope there. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with Arthur. I, I, I also don't think uh, th- this film, uh, any of the characters in the film, especially Theo, but uh, the film as a whole, as a you know a story that's trying to communicate an idea, uh, it doesn't feel like it thinks utopia, uh, any utopian ideal is workable. What it does seem to believe in, though, is a tomorrow. It really, in such a kind of wonderful way, the story, it's just the structure of Children of Men, a story about a world uh, with no babies, uh, just makes literal what all dystopian stories are about, right? It makes literal the idea of when we forget that there are going to be people after us, we make the world a much shittier place to be. Mm-hmm. And when our focus is on the here and now, um, that that's good. You know, you talk about presence and, you know, mindfulness. Those things are good on a... Pragmatism. A, a pragmatism. These things are good on, a, like, a personal level, a spiritual level, a, a way to be a happy person level. On a societal level, when you think about tomorrow, and that's just... Look, that's the way it is. We we have to... You have to play the long game. You have to assume that your job as somebody... If, if you are in any way, shape, or form involved in making choices for other people, you have to be thinking about how do I make sure that these choices make a better world for the people that are coming up after us. And that that's what Children of Men argues is all it takes is for us to completely and utterly stop giving a shit about the next generation and we're fucking donezo. And it just, again, makes literal that idea that I think, you know, for me, I see permeate all dystopia and stories. It just makes that literal and it says hope is a fragile and delicate thing and if you lose it, it just falls apart like a house of cards. But there is always a promise of another day. And as long as we have a promise of another day, as long as we can see uh, a way to make the next day better, we hopefully, as a society, will try to find that way. We're we're not always going to get along. We are, frankly, probably never in any of our lifetimes going to see the needle move. But maybe two lifetimes from now we'll have seen the needle moved, and that's that's the long game, right? And that's I think that's what children men is arguing. Children of men uh, is arguing for at a thematic level is, look, it's not going to get better in your lifetime, Theo Farron. It's just not going to happen. But you've wasted twenty years of your life thinking about you. You got to think about tomorrow. Excellent, excellent. Okay, I appreciate that. I I, I kind of I agree. I don't think it's entirely cynical, nor do I think it's entirely optimistic. Now here's the next question, though, uh, and this is the big political theory debate right now, and these uh, theories do get applied to cinema uh, throughout. And so I think this is a good conversation to have. Is the question of this? Is the utopia a useful idea? We do know that utopian ideals can be used for good. We've seen examples of that. We can see that they've been used for terrible ills, that Hitler had a utopian ideal, that Stalin had a utopian ideal. Jim Jones had Jim, a utopian ideal. Yeah, I mean, and so they're, they're def- they definitely can be misused. But is, is the idea Usually of— Usually when there's a male figurehead attached to them. But is the idea of a best possible future— is it something that is liberating and empowering, or is it something that can be, again, it can be abused for strangleholds of power. I think we've already talked about yeah. those examples. Or can it be a thing that in which you do not do the good thing right now because it's not the best or perfect thing? 
And so to what extent do we find the idea of this is what a society should look like, to have a full or as much realized of a vision possible? And I know, I know none of you prepared at all for this question, so I'm dropping this on you. But I, I do think this movie does ask that question. If we have an ideal idea of what you know environmental justice looks like, what economic justice looks like, what social and racial justice looks like, to have an, have an ideal of what that should look like, is it useful to put together that imagination? to put together our actions right now because I, I do think the film does beg that question because they've definitely lost that image and that's why it go, goes where it goes but does it need to come back or do people just need to think about an abstract tomorrow i think an abstract tomorrow is much more productive right because i think the notion uh that you you can help create a utopia in your lifetime is is a vanity uh, to assume that society is close enough to a utopia to see it happen in one human lifetime is uh, assuming that the story is about you. Uh, the story is not about you. It's about all of us. Because uh, you're going to die. Your kids are going to die. Their kids are going to die. And in three or four generations, nobody's going to remember your name. And that's okay. That's not... That's Look, I know that sounds sad. It's not. It's, it's part of it. It is part of knowing that you are pushing history forward in anonymity. Um, probably you uh, are not going to be remembered. But what is important is having a vague notion of... A perfect tomorrow, a vague idea that, ooh, baby, heaven is a place on earth. Uh, And maybe not for your kids or their kids, but maybe their kids or their kids. We can push the needle forward and maybe get a little bit closer. Uh, And I think that's what a utopia is useful for is is the tomorrow. Again, I think there's it is no accident that the ship that's going to pick up uh, Key and Theo is called the tomorrow. Right. It is about maybe the next day will be a little bit better, but you can't you can't expect tomorrow to be great. You can just expect it to be a little bit better. And I think that's where that idea of a utopia is useful. Yeah. I, I think I agree with Dalton. I think this idea that just every person doing their part to try and, and, and work hard to, to better the life of the next you know generation and, and their, their neighbor, their fellow man. I, I, I think the idea of this perfect utopia is, it's too hard to strive for. I, I don't know that it, it works. It's uh, arrogant. Yeah, it, that I just, you know, coming from, you know, a Christian background, just the idea that you know, everybody's inherently flawed. Mm-hmm. And there are people, no matter their upbringing, they could have, the, you know, the best upbringing. They're probably still just going to turn out to be bad people. And, and that's just the world we live in. And, and if you can't cure that, you know, if you can't fix that, I, I don't know that utopia is possible. But I think the idea to be able to have the majority of people working together, which I think you can do, uh, you know, everybody – it gets blown out of proportion that everybody, I think, is working against each other uh, in the media and in the internet. And you see these kind of single-focused spotlights. But I think just day-to-day, people want to just live their best life and help each other out. And I think having that hope and trying to spread that and, and working with what Dalton said to just push the needle forward is, is the best the best plan. In the weeks and months leading up to May of 1968, this great youth revolt that happened in France, and uh, they were demanding uh, a different kind of economy and a utopia, the Situationist and Art Group said, uh, let's be reasonable, let's demand the impossible. And um, I, I, I think I'm a little bit more pro-utopia than you guys are, but I am a postmodern uh, utopianist, I think, insofar as I say that it is good to have people imagine the possibility uh, 
and to to put together what perfection might look like and then to spend the rest of their lives striving towards it and knowing that your image of perfection is not infallible and that there are other images of perfection and that those images have to be in conversation with one another. To fundamentally be postmodernist, uh, according to Leotard, is to say that uh, we are going to be skeptical of the meta narrative, that this is where we're going to go and this is what is going to be best. But I do think you have to have an idea of that end vision in order to enable any sort of actionable change in the here and now to move that needle just a little bit forward. And I think that's why uh, I can't speak for Arthur, but myself, I, I think I might be a little less believing in it because I, I think you have to have a culture that's willing to deconstruct that meta narrative, yeah. right? And I, I again, I, you're absolutely right. Uh, this is a show that's all about, I think, at any time you'll hear one of the three of us talking about rejecting, uh, you know, rejecting a prep. Uh, presupposition uh, uh rejecting an argument rejecting an idea I, I, you know the, the rejecting a premise that something mm-hmm. has to be a certain way mm-hmm. and you're absolutely right i mean that that kind of striving for utopia requires a whole bunch of people to say i reject the current narrative right I, i'm less believing in that because i i don't know that in the next hundred years we will be able to as a human collective change the culture enough to be willing to question the meta narrative of, of the current structure of society yeah, I, I I think that's fair, and I, again, that's where it takes visionaries and poets for sure. And I'm, you know, and that ain't artists. me. Yeah, and, and I, I I I do feel like we're living in a time right now where this is going to happen. I mean, we're getting closer to it. Yeah, I, I think I, I, the, the the smallness and easiness of global communication makes it much more feasible. Yeah. but I, I mean, I'm thinking of the stuff in West Virginia, and I'm thinking of the stuff in Parkland, and I I think if there's a time for revolution, I think there's a time for that stuff to happen. If these people can keep their momentum mm-hmm. and, and the cynic in me says it's going to pass, right? Because that's what we've, you know, in, in the last 10 years, you know, everything, all these major events happen you know, the next day we move on. Uh, but right now there are groups of people that have momentum that we could see change, but I don't know where that goes. Well, and this is why Theo is so fundamental to what Children of Men is about, right? Because, I mean, Theo and Julian He were, was idealistic. Julian is yeah. the leader of the fishes, the peaceful leader of the fishes. Yeah. They were in love. Uh, you don't you don't fall in love with somebody that you have a fundamental disagreement about yeah. what the world should look like. Uh, you, that's just if not. If you do, works. it's very sad. If you do, you should not be in that. And uh, you, you don't text us because you know we don't know what we're talking about either. But you know, text your mom or your dad or your friend and yeah, talk you, about it. You need a hug. Yeah, but that's what Theo's so important for. Right? Yeah. We we are given reason to believe in his backstory that Theo Theo was a guy that believed in a positive tomorrow. And by the start of the film, he's a guy that sees a bombing at his uh, coffee shop and goes. Oh, fuck, it's Tuesday, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and it's very easy to lose your belief in a better tomorrow through heartbreak, through yeah. having the world consistently beat you uh, and tell you, no, you're wrong. It's not going to get better. And it's easy to lose to lose that optimism. And I, I think, Arthur, you're right in you know trying to take the lessons of children and apply them to our own world. Uh, you're right. The last year has shown us that there are a whole lot of people who are willing to uh, say a little bit of a needle move in my lifetime is not enough. It's it's got to be bigger. Yeah, it's got to be louder. Yeah. Um, and I, I think West Virginia and Parkland are, are two examples of uh, people who just want what's right for the the person next to them, uh, being willing to uh, say enough is enough. Yeah. Uh, and you're absolutely right. That's what it takes is enough people. As Dustin said, 
it takes enough people being willing to say we reject the current yeah. narrative. Yeah. I mean, the only way to move the needle a little bit is to demand the impossible. Yeah. And uh, and I think that's a good thing. And so this is an interesting conversation that's going to be had in academia. It's going to be had on the internet that we'd have to have. We'd love to have with you all, also, dear listener. Uh, this is a great film. There's so much else uh, going on. Is there anything else just particularly burning in any of your minds that we want to discuss before we move on? I I, I mean the other thing I think. You know the big eye on the needle chart. Of this is is the the camera work. Oh my goodness! I mean, yes, we, uh, just there are papers please. written about. You know, there are papers, essays, talks given about the use of long take in this film, and, and it's because you don't see long take in action cinema. No, you know we're we're so used to average shot length of two seconds or whatever. I don't mm. even know what the ASL is right now. Oh, uh, but yeah, I mean, the quick cuts, these quick edits that keep us in the action. And, and, and yeah, it's great. It's stylistic. It's whatever you know. But Caron's use of the long take here adds to that realist aesthetic, right? It, it puts us in the moment with Theo, and it's not showy like I, I would argue. Um, one of Caron's uh, contemporaries. Um, oh God, help me out. The Revenant. Uh, uh, Inuritu. Thank you. Uh, Inuritu. I, I think his long takes are a little showier, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. They're meant to be like look at the craft. Yeah. I think the way Caron uses it is. You are in this world. You yeah. you are just you're you're a fly following Theo. Yeah, and uh, it just really it never lets you like get excitement from the action. The three yeah. action beats in this movie never let you have any excitement out of them no. because you're there living it with Theo. Yeah, it, it, it adds so much emotional weight. The the car sequence, right? Uh, <sighs> we we have so much emotion through this. We have this kind of uh, uncertainty of the situation, and then we have this. A romanticism between Theo and Julia. It, it and, starts with the rekindling of their yeah. relationship. Uh, the, the, the ping pong ball, so, which is so great in that moment. Like, bit, yeah. 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 And, and then the shift, the ultra shift that it takes at the end of the sequence when Julia gets shot. Mm-hmm. And, and then the cops arrive. And then we see what kind of person Chuatel actually is and mm-hmm. what kind of leader he'll be. There's so much encompassed in this one take. It's like 200 something seconds, whatever. You know, it's done so perfect. And. Koran's use of his technical skill, and we see it again in Gravity when he's doing the long takes there, um, it adds so much weight and resonance and emotion to putting us in the moment and adding uh, thematically to what we're seeing, not just you know within the narrative and within the mise-en-scene, but just using the tools of the trade to really envelop us in this narrative it's it's fantastic yeah it just it, you use the form of filmmaking to force you be in to force you to be in a car and watch. Uh, a lost love potentially yeah. be rekindled and to watch one of those members of that couple have to like usher the other person into death. He's like, got to go through the heartbreak again right. that they've he had with their to, kid. He all, he's, he's reliving he that. He might get to have her. They might get to like reconcile. He was on the cusp of that again. Uh, of them finally like being able to talk. And, yeah. And boom, that's it. And it's interesting. And that's how fast life happens. Because this particular use of style by using the long take, which is associated with realism and the yeah. writings of Andre Bazan and others, um, it's interesting because the uh, the style of filmmaking, sort of the, some of the film theory in terms of style that was most effective for political change as early film theory was coming montage. together, was montage. Yeah, with, with Sergei Eisenstein. Yep. Yeah. And this is doing the opposite of that for yeah. the same sort of uh, desire. And I'm not going to say it's of a time and of a place or either 
it was effective. But I, I will simply say it is an interesting choice. Oh, yeah. It's a fascinating choice to say, yeah. you know what? You can also use realism to enter into suffering and to love and yeah. to loss and those kind of moments to also affect change instead of just sort of the uh, the, the basic principles of dialectical montage. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there's a there's really cool film theory oh, going yeah. on. F- yeah, film is ever a pendulum in conversation with itself, yeah. right? And it's something that's doing it in two months time in. And so it's what Zizek is getting at, but it's this use of almost this documentary style of filmmaking, right, yeah. to, to – uh, uh, give us this narrative and and add this realism and and stuff to it and, and documentary obviously has this you know, automatic authority of being factual mm-hmm. and real and, and and to bring that into action cinema it's genius i think yeah it is an authoritative kind of narration yeah. like this is your future yeah. you know which turns out it was right so <laughs> there but you look we're, and again i i don't think children of men is uh, here to bum you out and i don't think that we're not here to bum you out. Uh, I am a little I, I think Children of Men is good to remind you. You think it's bad. Look, we're a fucking short hair away from it being a lot worse. And uh, take take your life seriously. Take the life of the person next to you seriously. And, uh, I don't know, try, try to be better. Try to do better. And I would Try sim- to want for better. I would simply suggest it's time to start hoping real hard. Not so much hoping as much like I hope, but hoping as in I want to em- envision a future. And then what next steps get us closer to that? Yeah, and that, that's I think that's what I meant to, to not uh, – I appreciate your optimism of the utopia, Dustin. And I don't want you to think uh, Arthur I is too cynical because I think uh, uh, when I say you got to do what you can personally, it's just accepting what your limits yeah. are and saying, all right, well, I'm going to do my part. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to encourage the people next to me to do their part too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and for me, it's like claiming to what I know to be impossible. And knowing that it's impossible is what keeps me with uh, the uh, sort of uh, lack of fatigue that you're talking about, you know, keeping the momentum going. It's like, yeah. it's impossible anyway. But I'm going to keep hoping for the impossible because yeah. it's the only reasonable thing I can do. No borders, no nations. That's right. And so we keep moving. And this is why none of us will ever get to run for public offices because there's tape of us saying shit like that. Yeah, we're, yeah, workers of the world unite. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I am all done talking about all this stuff. We've had a great conversation. We'd love to hear yeah. your thoughts, dear listener. Uh, via those magical means. Uh, verdict time. We're all in. Duh. Duh. So what else are you watching, Arthur? Uh, I am obviously Itamama Tambien and Gravity. I think they both pair well. Itamama Tambien stylistically and thematically, but Gravity as well uh, thematically. I think the hope and that kind of stuff. It's really life-affirming film. Uh, and I think there's some life-affirming things about children and men. Absolutely. Uh, and so I think that all that's the Quran intro course right there. Just get into it. Uh, also, Fury Road, Mad Max Fury Road, I think pairs great. And, and Logan, I think the idea of this transporting this girl, mm. this hope, you know, to the, to a future for her. And I think uh, all three of those uh, or four of those films pair well here. Well, that'd be a perfect. Uh, ooh, that's yeah. thematically, yeah, that's a perfect. Uh quad watch yeah. i like it very much uh what do you say dalton what else should we be watching well i'm gonna go ahead and use this opportunity to uh sing the praises of clive owen yeah. um, go for it i'm uh, gonna say your else your recommended yeah. pairing is watch some damn clive owen yeah. movies um i'm gonna start it off with a film that i i really wanted to rewatch before this episode and i didn't have time because i haven't seen it since i was a teenager which means i, I probably am not gonna like it as much but it's the film closer uh, uh, with yeah. clive owen julie roberts natalie portman and jude law which uh, again is a film that i'm it's been so long I'm not willing to speak to its overall quality, but it is a film that made me really appreciate the craft of acting in a way I hadn't before. And the mm-hmm. acting in this film is pretty theatrical. Uh, I mean, it is based on a stage play, and so a lot of the dialogue is very on the nose. Uh, a lot of the performances are very big, and the feelings are very big. But for me, that works. I kind of like the bigness of the feelings of this film because uh, the film is just a series of very big moments and uh, for uh, – 
intersecting relationships between these four people, right? So all all of the scenes when we visit these these couples are you know breakups and reconciliations. They're they're big feelings, um, which causes you know it to have some problems that I, I'm I'm worried are going to make me not like it quite so much now that I'm an adult, but. For whatever bigness there is, those performances are really great. Uh, and I think everybody, uh, all four of the leads are fantastic. But Clive Owen, uh, again, one of my favorites. And a, uh, a performance that I first came uh, into contact with when I was a, a tiny little high school theater actor. And, uh, man, I just I fell in love with Clive Owen's performance. And it made me really appreciate acting in a way I hadn't previously. So you're going to start with Closer just because it's a fun acting exercise. Uh, then you're going to follow that up with uh, Inside Man. You get to watch uh, Clive Owen uh, act with uh, the greatest actor of all time, period, uh, Denzel Washington, uh, and just yes. get to watch them bounce off of each other. And uh, ugh, what, a, what a great acting showcase uh, in, a, in what is ostensibly a really exciting heist movie. Yeah. I mean, it is uh, – I, I can't think of many other Spike Lee movies you could call an action movie. Yeah. And Inside Man definitely is that. It is a thriller. It is a yeah. mystery. It's, it's got all that great stuff. And – is an acting showcase for Clive. And finally, an actual action movie starring Clive Owen, the incomparable and incorrigible Shoot 'em Up, uh, which is just absolutely batshit yep. crazy movie yep. and features Clive Owen just having the time of his life. Uh, you know, we said at the top of the show we wish he worked more. Uh, Clive Owen's never stopped working. He's put out like a movie a year. More every prominent, year. I think. Exactly. Is, yeah. yeah. I wish he got I mean. better work because yeah. uh, the last thing that he Quality, got. Yeah. The, yeah. The last like really critically acclaimed thing he did was The Nick, Nick. Uh, which I never got to watch, but I've heard nothing but great things about. And uh, I just want good things for Clive. And if you were not uh, converted on Clive Owen, I, I would encourage you to check out Children of Men and those other three picks because uh, I think those will do it. All righty. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I'm going to recommend three different kinds of media in my uh, recommends. First of all, starting with cinema in terms of utopian hopes and what to help and hope and, and again, some of its failures. That's Sergei Eisenstein's October, about the October Revolution uh, mm-hmm. and uh, some of its failures and uh, whatnot. I want to, I think it would be very, very good for you to check that thing out. Then I want you to listen to an album, Evil Empire by Rage Against Machine. Nice. Um, because, yeah, yeah obviously It's reasons. a good one. And then lastly, you should read a book. It is called The Theology of Hope by Jürgen Moltmann. And it's about the horizon of hope that makes possible change happen. That first of all, we must side ourselves with the oppressed as oppressors. And then by uh, elevating their position, we can await for that time to be invited to work alongside them to end oppression altogether. Did he get his feathers back? Did who? Moltman. Moltman when he molted. <laughs> wow, that's a hot take. Oh, um, Arthur, that was perfect. Okay. I loved everything about it. So Harold Moltmann, um, little <laughs> Eisenstein, and then uh, a bit of Zach De La Rocha with uh, yeah, yeah, some good stuff. So uh, check it out; it's going to be good. Hey, don't t- give Zach all the credit. That's a team effort. That is a t- uh, Tom, Tom Morello's who I was getting no. to, but yeah, yeah, and others. Yeah. Uh, so it's a good band, and uh, I miss them. Uh, although Prophets of Rage is pretty not bad too. Prophets of Rage is pretty is a pretty great super project. It's pretty not bad. Yeah. So I like it quite a bit. So there you go, dear listener. Those are our recommends. Uh, your syllabus just got longer. We're going to do another movie, I think, next week. Don't you guys think? I've heard rumor that we will keep doing movies yes okay what are we gonna do next arthur well we're getting right back into the good trash and we are watching for the first time on the good trash genre really shocking jean claude van damme in blood sport that's right the muscles from brussels and blood sport oh it's gonna be fun it's yeah i, I think uh, it is the seminal van damme movie probably. van damme at all yeah okay so there you go dear listener it will be a different <laughs> level of conversation than perhaps we have with children of men but i tell you what it's all about the conversation that was made watching the movie so worthwhile you keep watching we'll keep talking and we'll see you all next time would never say 
where she came from. Yesterday don't matter if it's gone. Thank you for tuning in to the Good Trash Genrecast, brought to you by the Good Trash Media Network. For all things Good Trash, go to goodtrashmedia.com. Our intro music is by Aaron Rodgers, and again, thank you, sir, very, very much. And our outro music is Ruby Tuesday by the Rolling Stones.